You are listening to History by E.P. Simons. I am Erica Prince-Simons, and you should know, you are listening to my history homework. It's a podcast adaptation of some research I did earlier for a graduate class, and the podcast itself is an assignment for a digital history class. So it probably goes without saying that this is going to be a lot of fun. Joyce Hodgkiss had been married to her husband John for 14 years when she stabbed him to death with a butcher's knife. She denied the crime in court, maintaining that it was he who threatened her with a weapon in anger before turning it on himself. Hodgkiss maintained her innocence even after her death sentence came down. It was only in her final days at London's Newgate Prison, where she awaited execution, that she confessed to her crime at last. She recounted to the prison chaplain, or ordinary, how she attacked her husband in the heat of the fight, though she did not mean to kill him. Convicted of petty treason, a crime more serious than murder, Joyce Hodgkiss was burned at the stake on September 12, 1714. The Ordinary published her story of suffering at the hands of a cruel husband, a late-hour confession, and inconsolable regret in her final days, alongside the biographies of other condemned criminals. The pamphlet sold for pennies apiece to London's voyeurs of crime, The ordinary feared that Hodgkiss, who was illiterate and poor, was too ignorant to even properly repent for her sins before her death. And yet, he counseled her and prayed for her soul until the moment her pyre was lit. Her defense in court and subsequent confession to the ordinary follow a common theme for women criminals of her time, that even as women admitted to committing crimes, they styled themselves as victims. To understand Joyce's story, there are a few things you need to know about crime in early modern London. This was the brief moment in time when nearly half of London's criminal defendants were women. This number would drop in half by the end of the 18th century, and by the time the city's Old Bailey Court closed in 1912, the proportion of criminals who were women sat roughly where they remain now. Historians are somewhat obsessed with the question of why women formed such a big proportion of criminals during this period, and what led to the decline. I took a look at Joyce Hodgkiss's story, and others like it, as recorded in The Ordinary's accounts, to understand a small piece of that puzzle. How women's own voices, as recorded by The Ordinary, may have played into these trends. Let me explain. Probably the most prolific scholar on crime in early modern London, Robert Shoemaker, noticed that there's this turning point in the early 18th century where women begin finding avenues to speak for themselves. The justice system changes in such a way that women are now defending themselves in court. But there's more. Around the turn of the century, the press is liberated from tight restrictions, and there's a rise in essentially true crime journalism written by the criminals themselves. Prolific criminals garner audiences with their writings and become a weird kind of celebrity. Public hangings, meant to be a deterrent, became like rock concerts starring the condemned criminals. This got so bad that it eventually led to the end of public hangings. So suddenly, women have a voice in how they are perceived as criminals, and Shoemaker looks at how they use that voice. Because he's discovering something else. That voice disappears in a matter of a few decades, and he wants to understand what he calls their silencing. He finds that during this time period, women criminals are primarily defending themselves in courts and in the press using stereotypes that will garner sympathy. By casting themselves as impoverished, desperate, and vulnerable, they attempt to justify their criminal behavior. He argues that this was part of a shifting narrative, changing cultural understandings of femininity and the emergence of a humanitarian narrative of suffering meant that 
female deviants increasingly elicited sympathy as passive victims rather than as active agents. As a result, he argues, fewer women were charged with crimes, and women's first-person accounts of their crimes became rarer by the turn of the century. I found this fascinating and wanted to learn more. Shoemaker's research examined newspaper accounts, but there's another really interesting source of first-person stories told by the women, those ordinaries accounts I mentioned earlier. Perhaps not coincidentally, the first half of the 18th century is also when the ordinaries accounts, those pamphlets, are published. What the women confessed to the ordinary were the last words of people condemned to die, and I wanted to see if Shoemaker's conclusions held when applied to women who no longer had anything to lose, except, of course, their eternal fate. In these accounts, convicted women described their crimes as attempts to survive, to escape dire situations, or to remain independent, appealing to the culture's sympathy for women as victims. I investigated the lives and stories of women criminals in three categories, those who had committed infanticide, murder, and theft. These were the early days of constitutional law, and penalties were strict even for small crimes. Dubbed the Bloody Code, England's legal system during this time continued to add new capital offenses, peaking at 215 in the early 19th century. But while the Bloody Code became bloodier, women's role, and voices within, London's criminal justice system diminished. Let's start with infanticide. I should warn you that there's some graphic descriptions in this section. Frequently described in the ordinary's accounts as a barbarous crime, Infanticide cases stand out for their focus on motive. The ordinaries pressed women for answers long after their trials ended. Not just why. It was nearly impossible to hide a pregnancy from an extramarital relationship, but how could you? The ordinaries' accounts for women convicted of infanticide often dedicated substantial space to tracing the events in a woman's life that led to the murder. Ordinaries invariably concluded that women did not control their own decisions at the time of the crime. Women criminals in infanticide cases are nearly always depicted as victims themselves, not only in the words of the ordinaries, but also in their own words. Of the eight infanticide cases studied, four include the explanation that the devil is to blame. In three accounts, a man is said to have seduced the woman into extramarital sex, and therefore bears moral responsibility for the infanticide. In his 1708 account of his conversations with 23-year-old Mary Eleanor, Ordinary Paul Lorraine wrote, When I asked her how she could be so cruel and so hard-hearted as to do this barbarous action, she said the devil had too much power over her. Lorraine described Eleanor not only as a victim of the devil, but of the man who tempted her into sin. Lorraine accused the man of deluding Eleanor into the sin of adultery and considered him responsible for her choice to murder her infant. Similarly, in the 1711 case of Phoebe Ward, the ordinary wrote that the devil had caused her to reject her partner's marriage proposal even after she learned she was pregnant, and that error of judgment had led her to kill her newborn. The devil had brought her to the commission of the most crying sin, when she could have been lawfully married not only before, 
But even after the father of the murdered infant had lain with her, she still refused to become his wife. Both the women themselves and the ordinaries used victimhood to explain the crime. The tendency to do so persists even after the woman is convicted. In other words, it is about more than mitigating consequences for the crime. The women who presented a trial defense or told their stories to the ordinary described their own experience of being pregnant and unmarried and of murdering their newborn as a series of attempts to hide or escape their predicament. Nearly all the women denied being pregnant even in the days prior to giving birth. Anne Hulluck, a woman who nearly decapitated her infant, said she acted in panic because, not realizing she was so far along, she was unprepared and she did not know what to do with it. Hulluck expressed deep regret as she awaited her execution, saying that given another chance, she would have rather begged from door to door with her child on her back. Mary Shrewsbury, convicted in 1737, described having obscured and denied her pregnancy before giving birth and cut her infant's throat in a dark room. When investigators searched her master's home, they found bloodied sheets in a closet with the infant wrapped inside. These stories of trying to hide obvious pregnancies and evidence of their childbirths and the bodies of the murdered infants reveal a desperate delusion that they could carry out a pregnancy, a birth, and a murder unnoticed. Women accused of murder did not so readily confess. In the six cases studied, which include women from ages 22 to 77, nearly all claimed to be innocent. While most of the women appear to have been poor based on their occupation and circumstances, poverty and desperation did not factor into the women's biographies or motives in the way that they did for theft or infanticide. Those convicted of murder claimed the deaths had been accidents, crimes of passion, or committed by someone else. In the absence of confessions, the ordinaries' accounts depict them as unrepentant women, several of whom the ordinaries considered to be too stubborn or too ignorant for redemption. Women accused of murder describe unplanned, chaotic, emotional moments that resulted in accidental death. Jane Griffin, who confessed in 1720 to stabbing her maid to death, recounted a heated fight over a missing cellar key. I was always blaming her for everything lost. I, using then perhaps a sharp word, the maid began very foul and abusive language to me. Enraged, Griffin stabbed the maid with a knife. Before her execution, she asked ordinary Paul Lorraine to help her write an execution speech to warn others how quickly passion could overtake one's impulses. I confessed the murder, but it was not malice, nor did I think of doing it a moment before. It was passion, passion I heartily advise and request all present to be aware of, especially in the first beginnings of it, lest it grow upon me and bring me to these miseries I justly undergo. Griffin's urgency to warn others and the sincerity of her confession do not appear in other accused murderers' stories. However, the explanation of unplanned crimes of passion appears in several accounts. In court, 77-year-old Mabel Hughes denied murdering a boy at the workhouse where she managed the children, but when coaxed by the ordinary, she admitted to having beaten him to death. She always declared she had no thought of murdering the boy, 
When she began to beat him, she did not think to hurt him, but believed she was hurried on by the devil and passion to the unmerciful deed. Similarly, Joyce Hodgkiss, from the beginning of the story, who stabbed her husband to death in 1714, claimed that she did not intend to murder her husband when she stabbed him during a fight. Framing their murders as crimes of passion follows the trend of women distancing themselves from responsibility for their crimes, even in the face of irrefutable evidence. In doing so, they reinforce the idea that they are powerless over their own impulses. In the words of the ordinaries, the unrepentant women were ignorant and obstinate, which both implied their guilt and jeopardized their salvation. Sarah Malcolm, executed for brutally murdering three people in a botched robbery, claimed that her co-conspirators had panicked and murdered the victims without her knowledge. However, ordinary James Guthrie referred to her disposition to prove her guilt. Bold, daring, boisterous, and willful spirit, void of all virtue and the grace of God, led her on a path of sin, till at last she was so far deserted of God that she fell into those abominable and vile crimes for which she deservedly suffered. Historian Jane McGrath, who studied her case in detail, argues that Malcolm's defense in court probably swayed the jury against her. She claimed unabashedly that the blood on her skirts was menstrual blood, not that of her victim. McGrath says, This may have done her more harm than good, as she spoke unashamedly of a taboo subject in the manner of a loose rather than virtuous woman. It only took the jury 15 minutes to reach a guilty verdict. This explicit connection between not conforming to gender ideals and experiencing a harsher treatment shows that the social attitudes about gender contributed to women's treatment in the criminal justice system. Nonetheless, Sarah Malcolm maintained her innocence until the end, penning this letter which was published in The Ordinary's account. Sarah, you can't but know that sadness is the rock of an affliction not to be expressed, a judgment more prejudicial than the worst revenge from an enemy's hand, which is like a venomous worm which not only consumes the body, but eats into the very soul. Or it is a mouse that feeds on the very marrow and vitals, a perpetual executioner torturing the soul and exhausting her spirits. So, Sarah, if conscience has touched you in the least, it must certainly leave sadness on your spirits, and it behooves everyone at their last hour to die in peace with God and the world. I freely forgive you and all the world. That was written by Sarah Malcolm on February 26, 1733. Now, let's talk about theft. Priscilla Mann and her husband John were partners in crime. One evening, the couple and two associates plied a victim with alcohol before robbing him. But when their victim gave chase, John abandoned his wife and friends to escape with the stolen money. Left to face trial without him, Priscilla claimed she was drunk and unaware of the attack occurring in another room. She implied that since the victim had also been drunk, he could not give reliable testimony. She never confessed to the robbery for which she was hanged, but admitted to, quote, innumerable other wicked and indirect practices, including prostitution. Like many women executed for theft, her ordinary's account biography chronicles a complex web of transgressions leading to her final crime, adultery, prostitution, mixing with unsavory company, and drunkenness. The eight female thieves I examined were poor and relatively young, aged 24 to 36. Their stories all reflect some level of criminal experience and cunning, though all still argue that they stole out of necessity. 
Women executed for theft usually had a criminal history, and the ordinaries wrote about them with little sympathy. Even when they had not committed crimes, the ordinaries described moral failures like not finding honest work, choosing friends poorly, or having illicit relationships with men. Priscilla Mann's journey toward execution at Tyburn started when she, quote, gave way to a man's solicitations, having two children with him, but never marrying him. After leaving him, she became a prostitute and, quote, took up with the vilest of company in town, including John Mann, who would become her husband. Each of her crimes and moral failings, as ordinary James Guthrie describes them, piled on top of one another to make the execution they faced inevitable. Guthrie also recorded the transgressions of Mann's co-conspirator, Elizabeth Fox. One of the most scandalous creatures and notorious pickpockets in town. The 24-year-old had eschewed work, fallen in with, quote, Rude, idle people. And subsequently, Done nothing but walked the streets, robbed, stole, and taking everything she could lay hold on. This tone of disdain for the criminal lifestyle permeated the ordinary's accounts for thieves. All of the women convicted of theft described themselves as victims of circumstance, whether due to the death of a parent, a husband's mistreatment, losing a job, or some other misfortune, each woman woman described a turning point in which she was forced to fend for herself. Mary Knight, sentenced to death in 1715 for stealing money, was a notorious prostitute. She told the ordinary that her life had taken a turn when she'd married a seaman who proved a bad husband. She resorted to prostitution and theft to keep from starving. Mary Nichols, known as Trolley Lolly, also executed for theft in 1715, made a similar claim that she was driven to stealing to care for herself and her children due to her husband's, quote, unkindness. The ordinary characterized both women as so ignorant that he merely hoped they could understand the need to repent before their execution. This image of poor and vulnerable women, unable to properly navigate the world without the protection of a husband, mirrors the shift from active agents to passive victims that Shoemaker argues would eventually lead to their exclusion from the criminal process. But there's a twist. The ordinary's accounts for thefts reveal a link between women's autonomy and the ordinary's hardened attitude toward them. When the ordinary believed a woman had chosen a life of crime over honest work, a marriage, or another law-abiding lifestyle, he blamed her not only for her own crimes, but for others' immorality. The idea that women forced men to drink or tempted them sexually appears as often in the accounts for theft as does the argument that women are victims, sometimes even in the same stories. Sarah Clifford, a pickpocket, was executed for robbing a male companion in 1713. The ordinary accused her of causing his death later that night, even as he acknowledged she hadn't killed him. Though she might not have laid violent hands upon the poor man, yet by her forcing him to drink when he had drank too much already, it plainly appeared to me, as no doubt it did so to others, that she was the cause of his death. This reversal of the victimhood narrative, in which women have disproportionate power to control men, appeared specifically when the woman resisted the ordinary spiritual guidance, failed to confess, or did not seem remorseful. These richly detailed biographies in The Ordinary's Accounts provide two valuable sources of insight into the women's lives, how they told their stories, and how men in authority responded. Examining both these aspects of the ordinary's accounts in three categories of crime, infanticide, murder, and theft, 
reveals a conversation of sorts in which women told their stories, received counsel from the ordinary, sometimes changed the course of their behavior, and thus shifted the ordinary's attitude toward them. These exchanges comprised a part of the public's shifting attitudes about women in crime. Most women chose to explain or defend themselves by highlighting their victimhood to circumstance, and most repented prior to their execution, even if they never confessed to their crime. When they did not, the ordinaries shaped their biographies into warnings for their readers. So the ordinaries' accounts ultimately contributed to a cultural perspective of women criminals as either vulnerable and in need of salvation, or so stubborn and vile as to be irredeemable. When the women refused to confess, the ordinaries' lesson was harsh, that their continued unrepentance would follow them beyond the grave. This has been History by E.P. Simons. I'm Erica Prince-Simons. A special thank you to Ben Simons and Jacqueline Trout, who provided the voices for the people in these stories. And you may have heard my baby in the background. That's Ari. The music on today's episode is Violin Sonata in B Minor by William Croft, performed by Marjorie Lavers, Jane Ryan, and Robert Elliott. To find more of my history homework, visit epsimons.com.